Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers Podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. Today, we're joined by John Bellamy, the EVP of Strategy Investment at Huge Games. John is a gaming industry M&A veteran, having previously worked as an early stage games industry venture capitalist at London Venture Partners and Jagex Games Studio. He joined Huge in early 2018 and is responsible for the implementation and execution of the company's build and buy strategy. Welcome to Hidden Layers, John. Thanks for having me. So tell us about Huge Games, first of all. What is it and what is a build and buy strategy? Sure. So Huge Games is a mobile free-to-play game developer operator. I'd say in today's reality, Huge is more of a operator and incremental builder than a brand new game developer. And that is quite a different skill set, as, as I'm sure we'll come to speak about in a little while. Huge is all over the world. We have, I think, 11 or 12 different offices on six different continents, a bunch of different countries, just about every nationality working at the business. So we're all over the show. I'm part of a very little office in huge London. There are three of us working here. And so it's quite tight knit, but um, we travel a lot, spend a lot of time together. We're most well known, I guess, for our two core products, which are huge casino and billionaire casino. They're not gambling products. They're free to play games. So you can kind of play, can't cash out real money. It's kind of like a mini casino experience where you can play slots games, that kind of thing. We've also built bunch of other puzzle games as well, hyper-casual games, all kinds of mobile games that are played by millions across the globe. And that continues to be what we do today. What is hyper-casual? So I think you're one of the first gaming companies we've had on Hidden Layers. Fill us in a little bit on what hyper-casual is versus a free-to-play casino game, etc. Sure. So there is a spectrum of games ranging from very hardcore to very non-core or casual. Hyper-casual games are at the very far left of that spectrum. They're about as non-core, as casual as games can get, hence the name. On the core end, these are games that tend to be more frequently played. They tend to be stickier games, so players might play for months or years instead of just hours or days. And they tend to attract sort of a higher propensity to spend, so more engaged users. The downside on this, though, for core games is that attracting those players is quite difficult, finding them is quite difficult, and so marketing and growing through a performance marketing strategy tends to be the go-to practice. On the hyper-casual end of the spectrum, you have games that are much lighter weight, much more simplistic, much easier to get into and play the first time, but also less retentive less likely to monetize successfully, and therefore you kind of rely on scale and virality to break through with hyper-casual games. So Huge has experimented a little with hyper-casual, but our sweet spots are really kind of in the casual to mid-core to hardcore games segments, because that's really where Huge can employ its best skills, which are live game operation or games as a service, and also user acquisition, which of course is a data play more than ever before. That's how we operate, though hyper-casual is, is its own beast, for those guys that do it well, it's amazing to behold. So I downloaded Billionaire Casino and started playing it in prep for our uh, discussion. And right. I probably could play that for like 2,000 hours, it seems like. There's like a million games in there. It's it's like there's social aspects. There's uh, charms that I have to trade and get and... There just seems to be a million different aspects to that game, especially if you like slots. I mean, I'm more of a blackjack guy, maybe some craps, but you know, slots is uh, 
slots is entertaining. So at Cognitive, we've worked with a casino free-to-play gaming company before also. And it's pretty interesting to hear about the actual real cash that is spent on these types of games. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how players interact with these games from a, a real money perspective? Sure. So like you said, there's a bunch to do in our games. And, and that's true of many of the kind of big incumbent product operators across the industry. It's um, increasingly true that players remain loyal to games that they like. And the more social these games are, the more connected they tend to be. And therefore, the kind of bonds between individuals are as valuable, if not more valuable, than the bonds between the players and the game itself. So you kind of build an ecosystem, and there needs to be lots to do to scratch many different itches and keep people entertained for a long time in order for that to flourish. So that's really where we pour our time and effort in. Of course, the way that this game makes money is the same way the business makes money. It's uh, based on free-to-play transactions, right? So you don't need to pay to play our games. It's totally optional. In fact, 92% of our players in any given month don't pay. They just play for free. The ones who do pay are a bunch of different kind of character types. So there's a few different drivers for why they do it. One of the most kind of prolific reasons for spending within our games is on the basis of competition. So at least within our game, something that I think we do well, at least I think we were the first to do it successfully anyway, is we have these clubs, these club kind of environments. And they're small clans of people that either meet each other within game or they know each other outside of the game, they play together within the game. And those clubs can compete at the club level against other clubs. And there are leagues and levels of rewards depending on your participation and relative success within those leagues. And so paying is a very quick way to bolster the performance of your team because perhaps it allows you to win more frequently or or win more rapidly or deploy chips more rapidly and therefore play just more of the game in a shorter period of time. And these kind of aspects play into the competitive angle of these club dynamics. And so when you have the most competitive clubs going head-to-head in any given season at any given time, the impetus to spend for the basis of your team performing better is quite high. We also find that it's usually not when our players kind of run out of chips in the game that they tend to spend. They spend when maybe a deal comes along that is super interesting, that allows them to kind of play the game at a much more aggressive pace and kind of win more frequently and enjoy this kind of short-term rush of excitement that is brought about by time-limited offers. And those tend to be quite effective as well. But it's important, I think, to remember that the majority of our players have never and will never pay in our games. And that's, that's kind of necessary for what we do because we need that social environment full of lots and lots of people. Otherwise, the entire ecosystem breaks down. All right. So then that, that moves us into more of the business side of the gaming business and revenue and all those things. So you announced about a year and a half ago an acquisition of an advertising technology company called Playable Platform. Can you talk to us about a, li- a little about that strategy and why why you would do that as a gaming company. Sure. So gaming, especially free-to-play gaming, is a marketing and a data play more than anything else, right? I mean, the success in free-to-play gaming is measured directly by a player's competence in user acquisition and in data, the two obviously being very closely linked. And so the people who perform better and can do better with those things tend to succeed more. Simply put, Advertising technology is one method of gaining an edge over competition. In the case of the acquisition that we made, we bought an incredible company called Playable Platform. Playable Platform was founded by uh, two extremely competent, extraordinary people, Johan and Eric. 
Eric is still with us now and um, kind of leads our tech teams more broadly than just advertising across the business, in fact. And so there's a lot of kind of competence that came with that acquisition. What they do in a nutshell is create very miniature, highly optimized games that are effectively just that, very small games, but they are used as advertising creative. So they are playable advertisements, meaning that instead of clicking on a video ad or a banner ad or some interstitial and then being redirected to a game, there is an interactive element within those creatives. So for example, you might be able to throw basketball hoops or shoot targets or any other kind of very lightweight interaction with a game within an advertisement as displayed on multiple devices. The kind of real genius of what those guys did and why we were so interested is rather than just having the ability to build those playable advertisements at scale, they could do that in a semi-automated way. And moreover, they could optimize the performance of those creatives in an extremely automated way by running very smart, very quick, very efficient A-B tests that are iterative. So there might be a thousand iterations of a particular creative with multivariate changes happening as decided by an algorithm, not by a human, such that you end up A-B testing hundreds and hundreds of versions of the same fundamental creative in a playable fashion until you land on something that works well. Those creatives have been the best performing creatives the company has been utilizing since the time of acquisition. And they've been the best performing channel for marketing generally, or kind of best platform on which to build marketing campaigns for multiple channels since the acquisition. It's uh, something we're very proud of and very happy we did. Are you running Playable as, as a services company to other game companies also or other advertisers, or is it just now for your own games? When we made the acquisition, they were servicing multiple companies, but since the acquisition, it's been uh, a huge only function. And so are they making the mini versions of all the little slot games, for instance, in Billionaire Casino, or are they doing just, they're figuring out all different ways that work? Yeah, all kinds of products with all kinds of creatives being served. I mean, fundamentally, they're nearly all playable, hence the name, but the playable ads being operated are for our core products, our new products, our casual games, and our mid-core games, all alike. So they really service the entire business. All right. So the gaming industry, especially mobile gaming, like you said, first of all, has a broad spectrum of types of games, but there are immense amounts of games in every single category, including, and I know you're, you've bought a, a puzzle game, but let's quickly talk about the casino games. There's a lot of different free-to-play casino games. How do you feel huge stands out amongst those? Is it because of the clubs, as you already talked about? Or is there a fundamental strategy behind how you build these games? Yeah, that's it. So you kind of hit the nail on the head. Clubs is, is the, the kind of conduit by which we differentiate. But fundamentally, the way that the products are different and actually the way that the company is different is the focus on social aspects of the games, right? So at least before I joined the business, I'd done my market research, a bit of diligence to try and understand what it is that Huge has in terms of competitive edge. And it became very clear within just a few Google searches that they were very well established and understood as the social, social casino company. In actual fact, most social casino games are not social. The name is a bit of a misnomer. 
they tend to be single player or lightly multi multiplayer experiences, but not massively multiplayer in the way that these games are offered by huge. And I think that shows when, when we talked through our kind of IPO prospectus, when it was pitched to investors and the way that we talk about our games, even today, you can see that the longevity of our player cohorts, so people who may have started playing in 2015, 2016, are still playing and paying today. In fact, the revenue generated from 2015, 16, and 17 cohorts is greater in 2021 than it was in 2020, even with players churning out over time. And that is exactly kind of the root benefit of having these kind of social ecosystems. And so I'd say what the company does better than anybody, at least what it did do better and still continues to do, is build social experiences that bring people together and continue to kind of elongate life cycles naturally without having to shove a bunch of content in to keep things fresh. The kind of social interactions create that freshness on our behalf. And that creates quite a sustainable moat for our games. And it's, it's kind of where we continue to focus. And do you see the clubs as being recruiting capabilities for new players? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So what we see is the clubs are helpful in actually attracting new players because there is a social hook into the games. But moreover, actually building first-time user experiences for players of our games, we've A-B tested the way that we do those a million times over. The ways that work best without fail every time we test it are those ways in which players are very early integrated into the social kind of aspects of the game. You can absolutely play the game solo should you wish, and many players do. But for those that kind of find themselves interact with other human beings very early in their gaming experience, they stick around an order of magnitude longer than those who don't. So actually, that's, that's kind of the hook that brings players in. It's also the hook that keeps them. And so that's where we pour the effort in. So let's quickly talk about the advertising strategy. We talked about playable platform as, as the creatives. What is your media strategy? Or is it pretty traditional where you're just going into sort of the, the mobile ad network type area or programmatic, things like that? Or are you doing search and social? How are you finding the right folks? Exactly. A programmatic search, social, offline, online. We're pretty broad. Retargeting, we've been kind of more aggressive with than ever before. And so, no, it's, it's certainly not a one-trick pony. It's a team of almost 100 people across the business, across data and also marketing that are working on multiple channels with distinct media buyers and all of the kind of plumbing and piping that goes underneath of that. It's a huge army of an effort that goes into making sure we're super broad. And that's kind of where you need to be. I think the days of just you know pumping money into a Facebook campaign and hoping your game scales, those are well and truly behind us now. And barriers to entry in gaming are a little bit higher today than they were in 2015, which is no bad thing. It just means that in order to compete, you kind of need to be more sophisticated than you used to, right? Yeah. Did you see the Apple iOS update affect advertising, recruiting, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. It very much changed the way that a lot of the kind of performance dollars were being spent. We saw a drastic shift in the entire industry away from some of those kind of iOS performance campaigns to Android campaigns, right? Uh, I think Bidalgo said that you know, CPIs lifted something like 73% in the last year. That was from a recent Island and Krejcik report on Android. There's a reason for that. That's not to say that iOS is a closed-off avenue for us. We still have an enormous kind of proportion of our user base existing there. And it just means that we, the way that we spend and how we prioritize different channels has had to shift, like with the rest of the industry. And so it's not the first time the industry has been shaken like this. The games industry has gone through a bunch of these shakeups from GDPR to this to everything else. And I think being digital and quite quick to react 
you know, overcoming these challenges is kind of the name of the game. But yeah, it absolutely did change the way that we spend and we had to adapt to this. We're seeing the opt-in rates around 41% for gaming altogether. And for us, we're loosely in line with those rates. So it's not like the entire iOS ecosystem shut off overnight. It just became a different game. And you talked a little bit about having, you know, data data teams looking at all of, looking at everything. And, and yeah. gaming in general, especially social gaming, where you're getting a lot of interactions and you're getting the heavy, heavy users and you're getting the very, very light users, but you really want more of those heavy users. And in your case, you want the spenders, things like that. How does data analysis work with your platforms? How can you translate data? You know, this is sort of our bread and butter cognitive. How do you translate the user interactions into actionable insights for advertising growth? Yeah, I won't pretend to be um, a kind of a, a data guy. I can do my best to use the language that I've used before that I've heard guys speaking about guys like yeah. data network. He's, he's nothing short of a genius. So the way that we do it in short is um, taking player behavior data points, right? So we have, like I said, this kind of constantly evolving first-time user experience. And we're very kind of capable now at identifying based on very early game behavioral activities and data points collected from users, the way that they interact with the game in the first 60 minutes or so, to build personas and understand how best to serve those users. So at any one time, we have multiple thousands of configs or versions of our live games operating in tandem, serving different types of players as identified by a bunch of different clustering methodologies early in the user's lifecycle. And so the short answer is we curate and make bespoke kind of experiences for a bunch of different player types, thousands of player types. And we spend a lot of effort and time in identifying what type of player a certain individual is within minutes or hours of them joining the game. And that's really where the battle for market share is being fought today. So my gaming experience with a billionaire casino will probably be different from somebody else. I mean, the the look and feel may be almost the same, but maybe the offers are different or whatever they're pushing. New game to me is different, things like that. Right. I mean, the way that you... um, This is the difficulty, right? It's like a balance you have to find because if you're building something that is intrinsically social, you need to be able to have comparable game experiences that can be talked about and enjoyed within groups but also kind of different and bespoke enough that they serve individuals effectively. That's the balance we have to strike, but effectively, yes, is the answer. Really interesting, really interesting. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the build and buy strategy. I mean, it's been pretty uh, well talked about from your IPO to other things. You had an IPO, you, you took the proceeds from that IPO, you're also publicly traded now. So what is huge games going to be the hugest or is there some strategic areas where you want to specialize? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen in the next few years? That's some question. It's a tough one to answer. <laughs> I mean, things are changing by the day, right? I, we're, I'm spending a bunch of my time looking at play-to-word initiatives and blockchain gaming initiatives, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, my timeline's full of NFTs and not much else. So this wasn't predicted kind of two or three years ago. It's very much everything today. And in two or three years, I suspect there'll be something else that is 
equally prevalent. Our job is to react quickly. So build and buy as a strategy is simple and it's kind of self-defining, right? We have growth via two avenues. One is building things and one second is buying things. Building is quite self-explanatory. We build new games and test them and try and grow them as best we can. We have, I think, six or seven live new products in development at various stages that I can think of right off the top of my head. And on the buy kind of initiative, it's split in two. We have the conventional M&A, which is very much a sort of headwind trend in the industry. You're seeing a bunch of consolidation. In fact, I think the last two quarters have been the most active quarters by deal count and deal value for M&A in the industry ever. That continues to be the case. As I mentioned, the kind of barriers to entry are kind of lifting across the industry. You need to be very sophisticated and well-equipped on data and UA to compete in this space. And so it's kind of harder for gaming upstarts, especially in free-to-play, to do that. So naturally, consolidation happens by those who kind of have those competencies. So that's one half of our buy strategy. The other is publishing. And we do publishing a little bit differently to the way that many other publishers do. In layman's showing early signs of promise, and we partner with the developers of those products. We finance the development and scaling of those products. In fact, we spend all of the user acquisition dollars ourselves on scaling those products. But really what publishing is for us is a means of identifying and capturing value from games and studios that we'd like to acquire at some point, but before they get to the point where they're commanding 30, 40 times EBITDA multiples, right? So if we can find a game that looks and smells and sounds good on paper and the metrics point in a good direction at a very early stage, and then we can lock in a call option that gives us the right to buy that game or buy that studio of developers, we will absolutely sign those deals that are very favorable to the developer, offer a very clear path to exit. And then as soon as those revenue thresholds are hit, as defined within the agreements, we pull the trigger, acquire the studio, acquire the assets, and bring them into the huge brand. That's kind of the guerrilla warfare version of M&A versus the kind of conventional run a process, hire a bank mm. methodology. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like an in-house VC, basically. A little, a little, yeah. Great. So you touched on the NFT and the blockchain thing. Can you explain that to our listeners a little bit? What does that mean? All my coins are going to be Bitcoins or what? (laughs) That's a really good question. I think the industry at large is trying to figure out how to answer that question. And we're seeing dollars flying around in any direction to whoever seems like they might have the best answer to that question. And so... The way that we think about it is that many of in-game assets that we leverage, like the charms that you mentioned earlier, they're collectible and they're desirable. And for players who have spent years playing our games and want to fill a scrapbook of sorts of those unique charms and prove that they own all of them as a collector's item, there is appeal in being able to do so. And so the most simple implementation I could think of, not that we're doing this, but this is something that's been discussed greatly, is imagine if we took charms and we minted them with unique serial numbers and put them inside a sticker book of sorts in game that could be shown outside of game within the Facebook groups that are built around the communities of our huge casino and billionaire casino titles and use those as status symbols that can exist outside of the game and wherever they want. That is one implementation of NFTs that makes sense. But then you can take some of our up-and-coming games like Brink of Mayhem, which is a co-op shooter game, very lightweight, sort of Fortnite-esque, very casual, very approachable. The idea of having tournaments that could be operated with real prize money pots that are denominated in crypto, that are governed by smart contracts and therefore don't require trust in a third-party tournament operator or or a league or anything like this, that allows kind of grassroots tournaments to be formed, built, and operated 
for a game that doesn't require any hands-on planning or infrastructure for running them. And that's quite like an enormous opportunity for a set of products that are applicable and for a company that's open-minded enough to do so. So those are two drastically different implementations of kind of blockchain or crypto functionality in gaming. I think the biggest challenge is finding, finding the discipline to implement blockchain-based solutions that genuinely add value and that can't be done without crypto tech, right? Because the temptation is to take something that can already be done in conventional means with a conventional database and just blockchainify it because then you get a keyword and a bunch of hits and it, it all looks great. But unless that adds real value to the user experience, it doesn't really do a lot except for that. And so that's, yeah. that's kind of where we spend our time trying to make sure that we're being disciplined and smart with how we do it and not just throwing jargon around. In what you're explaining, it seems like it's almost an easy home run when you're talking about economies, item economies within games. You know, the charms is one thing, but the one special gun that we put out for Christmas this year that somebody won in the tournament and now... Hey, if that, that person wants to trade that or sell that or whatever with a smart contract underlying it, you can enable that, that capability and keep track of it, you know, throughout the rest of its life, which, uh, That's it. yeah, seems really like a home run almost for, for everybody. So really interesting stuff. Well, we're almost out of time. It seems like we talked a little bit about the future of huge. Is there anything you'd like to add for 2022? You know, uh, Let's knock on wood and say we're going to come out of the pandemic. We're going to be optimistic. What's 2022, 2023 look like for, for huge games? You know, in 2022, 2023, I think if we come out the other side of that time period, everybody is happy and healthy. We've got through this crazy, nuts world period. Maybe we, you've seen a few headlines for a few new partnerships that have been signed, some continued growth in our core products, some continued growth from our new products and maybe one or two real experimental moonshots on kind of these new areas of development we just talked about. I think there'll be many smiling faces at Huge and many happy investors too. So I think if we can aim for all of that, we'd be happy people. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. This wraps up another edition of Hidden Layers. Thank you all for listening in. 